You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Everybody has a kingdom. We're all uh, kings and queens of our own little empires. We just don't usually think of it that way. Even a homeless person has a kingdom. It may not look like much, but they get to decide what they do with their lives, what they do with their possessions, where they go. Uh, Jeff Bezos might be the opposite extreme, right? We like the idea of having a kingdom like his, growing ours in that particular way. A lot of what it means to be human is to figure out what kind of area we have dominion over and what that looks like and how to do that well. How to run a job or to manage a team or to participate in a classroom or to be the kind of person who really manages a home well or figures out what it looks like to to provide opportunities for your kids and where the boundaries of this kingdom kind of meets up with other people's boundaries and what all that looks like. A lot of what it means to be human, the Bible would tell you, is figuring out that you have a kingdom, you have a responsibility, you have a purpose that you've been put on this earth to manage. And I've learned a lot about kingdoms uh, from my children. I don't know if, if you know this, I'm fascinated by my two little boys. Uh, they, yeah, they don't like to be told what to do. Yeah, I don't know, yeah, it's just it's a fact about kids, for those of you who don't yet have them. Uh, any idea what my, my little boy's favorite word is? No. Amazing. How about their second favorite word? Mine. You know, I'd really like to have some of that ice cream. No. Why not? It's mine. I want to play with that truck. No, it's mine. I want to go down the slide at the park. No, it's mine. No, it's not yours. It's mine. No, actually, it belongs to the city. That's a park. Uh, that's, that is no one's slide here. And so my children operate like medieval kings, carving up feudal France in my living room all the time. Just deciding, like, this is where the fort is, this is the entrance, this is the exit, this is who's allowed on which entrance and which exit. These are where the boundary lines are. They have little wars and skirmishes establishing their territories and marking it with little construction cones. These trucks belong on this side, these toys on this side. And if you try to go through the area that they control, they will try to make you operate by their rules. And all of this continues and sometimes gets pretty out of hand until, of course, the true ruler arrives who establishes justice and equity with a word, Mama. Yeah, and she will let you know that she is the ruler of this living room and this house and everything and everyone in it. And long live the queen. That's that's all I've got to say. <laughs> but yeah, there it is. Preach. And I'll tell you, you will really not understand Christianity or Jesus Christ until you begin to understand that you have a kingdom, and that God also has a kingdom. And where your kingdom interacts with the kingdom of God is kind of what Palm Sunday leads us toward, little by little, as we head to Good Friday and to Easter. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Would you open a Bible, or if you've got an app on a phone, we're going to be in Matthew 20, starting at verse 29. Matthew 20, 29. If you don't have a Bible or a phone, uh, we will buy you a Bible, and uh, you can buy your own phone. Matthew 20, starting at verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Jesus. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. 
When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stopped and called them, saying, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they regained their sights and followed him. When they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heavens! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When a Roman general was victorious in battle, like unusually successful, he would be given a remarkable privilege by the Senate. He would get to come in a parade in triumph down through the streets of Rome. He would get to bring with him all of his soldiers, wearing their actual uniforms and carrying their swords and their spears. He'd get to come in on a war horse, and people would go in front of him, and people would come behind him. And some of the people in the crowd would be captives, people he had conquered, kings in chains. And along with them, all of the things that they had stolen, that they'd taken, all of the money, the wealth, just on display, and people would line the roadsides, and they would cheer, and they would shout their praises. They would wave palm branches, they would wave banners, they would let people know just how great this general was, just what he had done for the empire, for the kingdom of Rome. And he would march all the way up to the capital, the great temple to the great God, and he would walk inside, and he would give a sacrifice as a sign that he was deeply favored by the gods, and that he was their loyal servant. That was called a triumph. That was the actual name of that in Latin. That's where you and I get the word triumph from the name of a Roman victory parade. Can you see how Jesus is shaking up that image? Just tinkering with the idea of kingdom and how we understand it. This passage is full of kingdom words, and Jesus is shaking it up little by little as we go from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. Jericho is a little town at the base of a mountain that's below sea level. It's the last stop on your way to Jerusalem. So people are on their way to Jerusalem because it's Passover, and Passover is a great nationalist festival. It's a religious festival, but it's also a reminder that a long, long time ago, God had crushed a rival empire called Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. He just destroyed it. And God had set these people free. He'd passed over them. 
He'd set them free from slavery and death and darkness, and they'd walked out and become this great nation. And every year, these people would celebrate, even though they were prisoners of Rome, even though they did not actually have a kingdom, they were really just sort of slaves. Every year, they would remember that God was really in charge, no matter what the world says, that God is truly king, and we are a part of his kingdom. And Jesus is a part of that crowd on the way up to Passover. And there's a lot of people with him because they're following him. But there's also a lot of people who are just on their way to Jerusalem. And as they walk, there are a lot of people begging by the side of the road because this is a good opportunity to get money from people who are on their way to a nice religious thing who want God to look nicely on them. And so people are begging for money by the side of the road. And a couple of guys hear that Jesus is walking by and they start shouting, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And you and I don't hear that as begging language. That sounds like religious language to us because it's in the Bible and because we sing songs that say, have mercy on us, and because we have it in prayers, so it sounds like liturgy. But the truth is, that is the language of beggars. The language of people who know that they need something. <laughs> if you were in the first century in Rome, and you were walking by the road, and somebody was holding a cardboard sign, they would say, have mercy on us. Hey man, do you have anything to spare? Sir, Lord, do you, have, do you have anything just in your pockets? What do you got? And when the people hear these guys begging from Jesus, they go, the king is much too important for you. You don't belong in the kingdom. Which is often what happens when people follow Jesus. Unfortunately, we frequently misunderstand how it is that we got to follow Jesus. <sighs> and I get choked up every time I talk about it which is annoying to me, sorry. We forget how it is that we got to follow Jesus. It's not because we were so smart. It's not because we were born in the right country. It's not because certain people told us certain things and we like celebrating Christmas. It's because there's this God who loves us so much, who loves us so much that he invited you and me to be a part of his kingdom. And we didn't earn our way into it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It's a gift. So these people who follow Jesus, they shove these guys away because these look like the wrong kinds of people. But the only people who follow Jesus are the wrong kinds of people. There are no perfect people. The only people who get to follow Jesus are imperfect people. People who are deeply aware that they need a savior. People who are deeply aware that they want to be a part of someone else's kingdom because they've done a pretty bad job of managing things all on their own. So these guys, they're shouting by the side of the road and the crowd tries to quiet them but they, they don't succeed, because the blind men see something in Jesus, which is very clever storytelling. The blind men see something about the king that the crowd can't see. The crowd is blind to him. And so they shout even louder. And Jesus stops and listens and asks a very Jesus question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you really want? That is a question we get asked on a regular basis when you come into the presence of Jesus. What are you really looking for? What do you really want? Are you hoping that I'm going to help you do better at running your own life? Are you hoping that I'm going to help you just sort of expand the boundaries of your kingdom? Or do you want to be a part of my kingdom? Do you want to bring what you have and put someone else in charge of it? What do you really want me to do for you? It'll say in a second that these guys start to follow Jesus. 
Follow is a kingdom word. Just like no and mine. Follow is a kingdom word. It tells you who's in charge, and it's not the person following. So this, this crowd of people around Jesus, they aren't captives in the sense that a Roman general would have captives. They haven't been conquered by force or with swords, but by mercy and love, with salvation and grace. Anyone and everyone in the crowd around Jesus follows Jesus because of how much they love Jesus. That's what it is to be a part of the kingdom. If we love Jesus, we will find ourselves following him. We'll find ourselves worshiping. We'll find ourselves inviting other people into this kingdom, inviting other people into this story. And so they start marching along, these folks. And right when the next chapter begins, Jesus sends two disciples into a village, which I think is really interesting. Most of the time when it comes to Palm Sunday, that's where the story starts. But it's interesting to me that two people just got cured of blindness, and two people are now walking into a village looking for donkeys, which is a pretty crazy story. The two people go walking into a village looking for donkeys. They have kingdom eyes to see. And it turns out that Jesus is just in charge of this house and this living room and everyone and everything in it. Anytime you hear Jesus talking, he's just very confident that he's in control and that everyone else will do exactly what he tells them to do. And so he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into this village and you're going to find a donkey and another donkey. I want you to take those donkeys. And if anyone says, what's going on? You say, the Lord needs the donkeys. And they'll go, okay. <laughs> It's an unbelievable story. If Jesus said to you, go into that neighborhood over there, you're going to find a red car and a motorcycle. Take both of them. And if someone says, yo man, that's my car, that's my motorcycle, you say, the Lord needs them. And he'll say, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. It's unbelievable that Jesus just has this kind of power over people who are a part of his kingdom. But people who are a part of the kingdom of God, people who really understand just what it is to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, they go, well, yeah, this isn't mine. This belongs to Jesus. I get to use it. I'm a steward of it. This is a part of something that I want to manage and, and be really good at managing. But of course, this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to Jesus. It's at his disposal at any moment if he needs it. Unbelievable that that is really true in this story. Jesus takes two donkeys. Not one, but a donkey. And then like the... No Unbelievable. Like, you could ride one donkey. What is, what's going on? Well, there's a prophecy. I need both donkeys. It just it makes it all work for Zechariah. What would it really look like if we lived our lives as though Jesus really did own everyone and everything on this planet? How would that change our anxiety? How would that alter the way that we deal with a global pandemic? How would that change the way we see some of the people we really disagree with? Some of the people we really don't like. How would it change the way we forgive other people? How would it change the way we lead our families? Or we remodel our houses? What would happen if we really did believe that Jesus was the king and that all we were were followers? How would we spend our money? I think differently. I'm not saying we'd have less money. I'm saying we'd spend it differently. There's a pastor I know named Kevin Miller, and he has a couple in his church, and they live in Indianapolis, and they do a lot of research and thinking and economics and math and things like that. And what they would say is that, in general, if you wanted to solve all of the problems of poverty all around the globe, child hunger, sanitation, clean water, prenatal care, education, basic development work, it would cost about 70 to $80 billion a year. 
a year, 70 to 80 billion with a B. And that sounds impossible until you begin to realize that if the church in the United States, just the Christians in just the United States, gave 10% of their income, tithed, just that, not more than that, exactly what they're supposed to give, there would be an additional $86 billion to give away. Let me be clear. This would not alter any church budget in any way. There would just be an additional $86 billion in just the United States. We would solve poverty globally, and we'd have $6 billion left over. What would it really look like if Jesus was king? He's shaking things up. That's what he's doing on his way into Jerusalem. He's got a crowd of people around, but they're the wrong kind of crowd. He's riding on a horse. Actually, it's not a horse. It's not a war horse. It's a donkey. The Romans would have thought this was cute. He's not coming to town in a tank. He's not riding into town in a Ferrari. He's in a 1996 Acura. It's valuable. It's just not that valuable. Like, if people owned it and it was their only vehicle, they'd be thrilled. This is my car, right? It matters to me. But to people who really have money and who really have power, this is not impressive in any way. And Zechariah, the guy who makes this prophecy that we read in this passage of Scripture, wants to make it really clear. When you see the king, you're going to see he's a different kind of king. When you see him come conquering, he'll conquer in a very different way. When you see him sit on a throne, it'll be a very different kind of throne. He is shaking up your whole understanding of what kings are and how kings operate. You'll see him humble and riding on a donkey. That's what he says. And people in the crowd, they see this, and they understand that this is a royal kind of move. And Jesus, who is sitting on his donkey, understands this to be a royal kind of move. Up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, if anybody calls him the son of David, if anybody starts talking about him as Messiah or Christ, he will shush them. Listen, you don't really understand what that means? Stop saying that. But all of a sudden here, when blind men start saying it, when they start walking into Jerusalem and he's sitting on a donkey, when he's heading to the cross, he says, yes, now you will begin to understand the kind of king that I am, the kind of king that voluntarily chooses to go to the cross, the king who will rise from the dead. You have badly misunderstood what it is that we are looking for this whole time. Son of David, they keep calling him. The blind men were calling him that. The people in the crowd are calling him that. David is a king you may remember from the Old Testament. He killed Goliath, giants, this guy. He was an amazing king, conquering giants, doing amazing things. And his children were amazing people. And a long, long time ago, there was somebody who said there will always be a child of David on the throne. There will always be a king in the line of David. There will be somebody who will come who will be the true king of Israel, and he will come into Zion, the city that David founded, and he will rule in such a way that you will really understand that God is king in Israel and that God is king of the world. These people are calling him the son of David. They don't even know what they're saying. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna is a, a nationalist phrase, right? So it's God save us, but it's God save us in kind of the same way that I'd say, God bless America or God save the queen. So it's much less about God and much more about us. Right? God save us. And what they're really hoping, these people, is that when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, he's going to just get rid of all these Romans, that he's going to be the kind of king they're looking for, that there will be blood and violence and that Israel will be safe and holy again. And Jesus is going to do it all wrong. He's just going to shake up all these understandings of kingdom. He's going to massively disappoint these people. He will be a huge failure in so many ways. Uh, my friend Lauren is going to pull up a picture right now. Of, uh, this is the temple in Jerusalem, that big building up there. This is a reconstruction, so it all gets torn down much later. The reconstruction, so Jesus is working his way up, and he's going to walk in through there. That's what's going to happen. But that big building to the next, like just right next door, 
literally next door, like the walls are almost touching. Yeah, that's called the Antonia. That is a Roman fortress named after one of those great conquering generals, Mark Antony. Do you notice how it's slightly taller than the temple? That's on purpose. They wanted to make it really clear, we are bigger than you, our gods are better than you, and we're right next door if anything gets out of hand. There are 600 soldiers in there, armed to the teeth, always. And they are ready for any moment that anyone says, Caesar is not king, I am. They will come flooding out with their swords, ready. And what these people are hoping is they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that Jesus is going to march into that building and do some damage, roll down some holy thunder, not just heal blind people, but knock some people out. And instead, what Jesus will do is walk into the temple and throw a bunch of people out of the temple. He will challenge the wrong kinds of people. He will say, you have badly misunderstood the kingdom. And a little bit later, those people are going to be pretty offended. And they're going to say, this guy tried to be the king of the Jews. And they're going to make sure the Romans hear it. And the Romans will say, oh no, no one gets to be king except Caesar. And they will put Jesus on a cross, which is the symbol of Roman power. Absolutely the statement of what their authority and their kingdom is about. If you get out of line, we will kill you. That's the kind of peace that Rome brings. It's totalitarian dictator kind of peace. I don't think we're usually aware of how close those buildings are to each other or what we exactly expect Jesus to do. But these people know exactly what they want Jesus to do. And I think one of the reasons they call him prophet and not king in verse 11 is they're not looking for a king. They don't want kings anymore. A prophet is somebody you have to listen to, a nice religious guy who knows some things about God. But then I get to go live my own life. I get to do my own thing, I get to run my own kingdom, and no one can tell me what to do anymore. I get to live in my great nation that's loved by my great God, and I can do whatever I want, with whatever I want, however I want. This is the prophet, they say. Who is this? This is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth. Now, prophet's not a bad title, but it's not the same thing as king. Because a king is someone whose kingdom you're a part of. A king is someone who is in charge of you. And when Jesus ends up on a cross, it will be because a variety of different people, Roman, Jewish, religious, non-religious, do not want his kingdom. And that's the end of this week. That's Good Friday. And we'll talk a lot more about the cross on Good Friday. But the whole story, which begins in triumph, ends in failure. Goes to the temple, actually, and rather than make a sacrifice, he kicks a bunch of people out of it. There's a, gosh, a city named Bishek in Kyrgyzstan. Far away. This makes sense, I promise you. Shitty name of Shek in, in Kyrgyzstan. It's, it's just below the Alatu mountain range, and if you look up, you can see the celestial mountains all around you. You can look down to the valley below, and they have a, a monument there, a series of monuments, actually. And the monuments are not to great victories. They're not to moments in history where these people have conquered. The Kyrgyz are not people who have done very well in empire or in war. They actually have three huge monuments to massive failures, glorious failures. In 1916, Tsar Nicholas, who's in charge of Russia, decides that Kyrgyzstan is Russia and decides that those people will fight in World War I. And they refuse, and 100,000 men die in the mountains. And then in 1938, Joseph Stalin, who is now in charge of what is now the United Soviet Socialist Republic, decides that 137 writers, leaders, artists, politicians need to be murdered 
in Kyrgyzstan, because they are resisting. So he leads them up into the mountains, and they are all shot. In 2010, 84 people die in a single day, and there are actually quite a few more who die, because they refuse to be a part of yet another totalitarian, brutal regime. They refuse to be a part of the wrong kind of kingdom. These are monuments to failure. But the Kurds would tell you they are monuments to triumphs. Absolutely. Huge triumphs. Where people died in the service of a different kingdom. We understand that, you and I, because we bow before a cross. We bow before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we know that that's actually a triumph. That he has turned the world upside down. That Jesus has conquered at the cross, not been conquered. He is not a victim of Rome. He's not a murdered citizen. He is, in fact, someone who willingly goes as a sacrifice to show that he is deeply favored by God and that he is the true servant of the God of the universe. And he will rise from the dead in victory. And that is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. This crazy idea that Christians have that the murdering of our Savior is, in fact, his victory. That the upside-down nature of this kingdom, when people are shouting Hosanna, they don't even get what they're saying, that Jesus is the true king of the world. This is a triumph that we're seeing, a complete shaking up of what the kingdom means. Verse 10 in our passage of scripture, there's a word in my translation, turmoil. In yours, it might have said something like stirred up or stirred. And the word in Greek is seo. It only occurs three times in the Gospel of Matthew. Three times. It's connected to the word for earthquake, shaking up. The whole city is shaking because Jesus the king is coming back to where he absolutely belongs, Zion, city of David. The next time the word's going to come up, chapter 27. As Jesus is crucified, the temple will shake. The curtain will be torn in pieces. He is shaking up the understanding of the kingdom in life and in death. The next time it's going to come up, chapter 28, when Jesus rises from the dead, and the ground shakes, and the stone is rolled away, and a bunch of Roman soldiers found, fall down like dead men because they can't handle this kind of kingdom. They don't understand this kind of conquering. They can't handle this kind of triumph. These are kingdom words, my friends. And you and I, we worship a God who either fails miserably on Good Friday or celebrates the greatest victory the world has ever seen and will ever see. The coming of the kingdom of God. You are invited into that kingdom. You can be a part of its triumph today. Would you pray with me?